Amen. Please remain standing, and if you would, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. We are looking at verses 28 through 36. Let's pray before we read God's Word. Lord, we thank You that You speak, and we have a sure word in the prophetic book, in Your words. Lord, these are your words. I pray that you will help us to receive it as such. Your word will not return void, even even as we just witnessed. Lord, you are bringing in your people, your beloved sheep. Lord, I pray that you will continue to do that even this morning. Let the word go forth, change our hearts, that we might embrace and long and love Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. People of God here, God's word this morning from the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, um, beginning there in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear the word of God. Please be seated. As we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, I wonder if, like me, you have sometimes pondered or imagined being there, uh, being with the disciples, uh, seeing what they see, hearing what they uh, hear as they travel around with Jesus. Think of everything that you might have experienced so far. Jesus speaking, and there is immediate silence to a storm. Uh, bread has just been multiplied again and again and again and again. Uh, uh, Healing after healing, rise up and walk. Uh, No more leprosy. And and just the amazing things that Christ has done. But here in our text, Jesus here being transformed outside the cross and the resurrection, I think there is not anything more wonderful than what happens here where God removes the veil of Jesus' humanity and the deity of Christ bursts through in radiant and unadulterated glory. It is a truly amazing text. One author said, the transfiguration is one of those passages in the Savior's earthly history in which an expositor would rather pass over in reverent silence Who is able to fully speak of that wondrous night scene among the mountains during which the heavens for a few brief moments let down the earth 
and the mortal body of Jesus being transfigured, shone with celestial brightness. And the spirits of just men made perfect appeared, and they held converse with him, respecting his approaching passion. The Father's voice came forth from excellent glory, pronouncing Jesus to be his well-beloved Son. It is too high for us, the august spectacle. We cannot attain to it. Its grandeur stupefies, its mystery surpasses our comprehension, its glory ineffable. And maybe you think too, maybe that'll be it for the sermon. It is too high for us. Who can attain it? But you know what? God has given us this passage, and it is high. It is awesome in the truest sense of the word, awesome. But because God has given it to us, it is our duty now and our love and our delight that we might know it, that we might better know Jesus Christ. And so we will try to humbly approach this text and with the time that we have to gather as many precious jewels from it as we can that we might better behold the glory of Jesus this day. There are three sections, three parts in this text, if you might be surprised about that. But we have the the transformation, we have the visitation, and then we have the proclamation. So the transformation of Jesus, the visitation by Moses and Elijah, and then the proclamation by the Father. Here in verse 28, we begin with the transformation. In verse 28, it says, now about eight days after these sayings. What are these sayings? This is one of the important things I think that is helpful in in, in working through a book like we're we're doing because we know what Jesus is talking about here, what, what, what Luke is talking about. The sayings is that we had just listened to uh, Peter uh, pronounce, it has been revealed to him by the Father, that Jesus is the Christ of God. A wonderful thing. He, he is the one who has been promised from the Old Testament, from the very beginning. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. He is the redeemer. He is the son of God. But then he says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to rise on the third day. But also, if you're going to follow me, you too are going to suffer. You too, before you receive glory, you too are going to have to take up your cross daily and follow me. You're going to have to lose your life now. Let go of this world that you might follow me and save your life. What does it profit a man if he gains the entire world yet loses his soul? After these sayings, that was last week's sermon. I'm sure you all remember that. Now, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, and as they go up on a mountain to pray in verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Before we get to Jesus' transformation, I just want to point out again, once again, what is Jesus doing? Praying, praying. He is praying again and again and again. And if you follow, if you've been tracking the life of Jesus, just about anything, something just incredible happens like this. Jesus is praying. Uh, And it is often while he is praying, again, like he is here. And I think one of the reasons we as a church are so weak is because we do not pray. 
we should be praying. Jesus has set the example for us that we ought to be praying. If someone could not have prayed, it should have been Jesus, but even he, especially he, is praying. And we too ought to be praying, pleading with God, pleading just like here in our text, that the glory of Christ might be revealed to this watching world. No one will come to the Father unless the Father reveals it. Remember, after these things, this tax happens. Jesus was praying, praying that he might be revealed, and the Father answered it to it, and Jesus says, Peter, you would not have been able to pronounce me as the Christ unless the Father has revealed it. And we as a church must be praying, Father, open up the eyes of our hearts and the hearts of this world that they might know and see and believe that Jesus is the Christ of God, that they might see his glory. And no one will come to the Father unless the Father reveals it. So let us be praying to that end. We must be dependent on Christ for all things, dependent on the Father. And as Jesus is praying, we're told he is transformed. And the Greek word there, as many of you have already heard this, is is, is metamorphosis. He's not becoming something utterly different, but he's changing from one form to another. His face is being altered and it begins to shine. Matthew's account of this tells us that it, it shines with the intensity and the brightness of the sun itself. His clothes become such a white that there is not such a bleach or a Clorox or an OxyClean that can make it that white. He is dazzling white and his face is shining like the sun. In a moment, in a flash of the eye, Jesus reveals to them that the veil of his, uh, his human figure, though he is still human in all forms, but the veil of the human is spread apart for a moment, and that the deity is revealed. God in flesh, but yet here his full glory is revealed. John will then see this vision again in in Revelation chapter 1, and I read this just to help us get a, a better visual of a picture of what's happening. John says in Revelation chapter 1, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, born to Mary. And who was Mary? A nobody. And a no, no, a no man town of Nazareth. And yet here, his true glory is revealed and seen. His face is shining. It is not a cute little halo around his head. They see the glory of God. They see the shining sun. And His glory is filling all around them. It is a glimpse for them 
and is a reminder for them and a reminder for us that this world that we live in is not the only world that there is. That there is now, right now, not a future world, but a world that is filled with the glory of God and that waits for us. And this text is a reminder to us that God is glorious and Jesus is glorious. This text, I think, is also a reminder for us uh, and it points to us another scripture where another person's face was shining. A, thousand, a few thousand years before this moment, Moses ascends to Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? And he meets with God and, and Moses requests to see the, the glory of God. Let me see your glory. Let, let, let me see you. But God says, you can't. You can't see me and live but I let you see the reflected glory. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock as I pass by. And even in that veiled glory becomes so intense for Moses, he comes down from the mountain and people are terrified of Moses because his face is reflecting and, and, uh, uh, that glory that he was in the presence of. And they ask him to put a veil on his face. It is so intense that others can't be around it. They're terrified. But this in the case of Jesus, it's not a reflected glory. He is the source of it. He is divine, and all the glory, all the power is coming from Him. And here in this text, men see what Moses longed to see but couldn't see and can only be seen in Jesus Christ. You can only behold the glory of God in Christ. Why does this happen? Well, this transformation doesn't happen just for Jesus' sake, but for his disciples. It's preparing his disciples for what is about to come. It's preparing them for the agony, for the suffering that they are about to experience. Jesus said, you are going to take up your cross daily. You're going to die to self, but live for me. They are going to be with Jesus again as soon as he goes into the garden and as he's praying it and, and sweat of, of, of drops of blood are, are coming down as he contemplates drinking the wrath of God for our sin. They will see Jesus' face and clothes no longer shining, but the sun itself will be darkened and Jesus' blood will be shed in our place. And this text will help them and help us to prepare us for the sufferings of the world, so that they will not buckle under the weight of the flesh of the devil of the world, but would know that there is glory to come. And same is the case for us. We face many enemies. We face the devil, the world, and our own flesh. But this is a reminder that after we have suffered a little while, glory is to come. But right now, suffering. We are to take up our cross daily, dying to self, dying to our flesh, dying to world, not listening to the lies of the devil, living unto Jesus Christ. And once we too have suffered, glory. And same with Jesus. He too would wear the cross before the crown. And as Jesus' transformation occurs, there's also a visitation. And verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? <laughs> you know, they didn't have picture books. I don't know, but somehow they know. Um, they're, somehow they're able to recognize them. And why are they there? 
Well, in Jesus' day, the Old Testament wasn't called the Old Testament. It was just referred to as the law and the prophets. And Moses here represents the law. And Elijah is in the first man in line of the line of prophets. And so he represents the prophets. And so between Moses and Elijah, you have all of the Old Testament represented in the law and in the prophets. And they are there to remind us and the disciples and even an encouragement to Jesus that everything that is written about in the Old Testament and the law and the prophets is pointing to Jesus. Everything that the Old Testament is written about is pointing to what Jesus is about to do, about what he's going to accomplish. The whole Old Testament, <clears throat> the law and the prophets, they're there to say, Jesus, it's all about you. This is why you are here. You're making your way to the cross. You're going to die for sins, and you're going to rise again on the third day. And, and we spoke about it. We wrote about it. Uh, we were given visions about it, and you're here to fulfill that. And they discuss his departure, that is, his exodus. Again, Moses led an exodus, didn't he? Bringing people out of slavery, bringing them into the promised land. And even that, again, the Old Testament, it's all pointing to Christ. They're speaking about Jesus' exodus, that Jesus is going to lead his people out of true slavery, out of true bondage, into the land of the living, into the promised land, that is not an earthly land, but a heavenly land. And notice too how it says it's going to accomplish this exodus, accomplish his death. It's a funny phrase. When any of us pass away and, and we go on into heaven, no one ever says at the funeral, you know, his death was accomplished. Uh, that's a, a weird phrase to talk about someone dying, accomplishing your death. Well, that's because Jesus' death is different. It's a mission. It's the exodus. Um, his exodus is to point to, to that mission that he would be the greater Passover lamb, that he would be a greater redeemer than Moses. His death would, be, uh, would accomplish our redemption uh, from freedom uh, and give us freedom. His exodus would lead us to the true promised land. And I think also there's a wonderful irony in this text. If you remember, Moses led God's people out of Egypt, and he's leading them into the promised land. But Moses doesn't get to go to the promised land. He sins against God, and God doesn't allow him to go into the promised land. But now in Christ, enshrouded in Jesus' glory, Moses is standing in the promised land with Elijah. I think that's really neat. I think that's really special. A, a small grace of God that in Christ, Moses is now standing in the promised land. But just imagine your Peter and now you wake up from sleeping, which is another theme of disciples, sleeping when they ought to be praying. I think that maybe sounds maybe too familiar to us, sleeping when we ought to be praying. Peter, and here you are, and you're now observing all of this. And I love Peter's phrase. Just imagine, just picture with your mind that, you know, the radiance of Christ is just beaming now you see Elijah and Moses somehow are here in their perfection in Christ. And then he says, this is good. This is good. Um, this is what I'm talking about, Jesus. Remember, you know, you were just talking to me a few days ago about suffering and taking up your cross. But Jesus, this is good. Not that suffering stuff. This. Jesus, I want 
This is what I want, Jesus. This is what I'm talking about. You know, just, let's just stay here, Jesus, and you keep doing your whole shining thing, and uh, you keep that up, and, you know, let's, I'll get a tent for you and Moses and Elijah, and uh, this is good. This is good. You know, Peter doesn't want to leave the mountain. Uh, he wants glory now. He doesn't want the cross, and so do we. You know, th- this is our disposition too. Peter actually at this moment, he, he has no interest of going to Jerusalem. He has no interest in preaching the gospel. He has even no interest for the other disciples. If you notice, Peter is like, Jesus, this is good. You know, let's go get those other guys and bring them up here too. No, he's like, we're going to stay here. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's going out there. Here, this is good. Let's stay here. Let's get the tents. This is it. He doesn't care about anyone else. He just wants glory. He wants the crown now. But once again, we also see Peter trying to dissuade Jesus from his mission. Even in last week's uh, text, not in our text, but in uh, uh, other accounts, uh, Jesus will say he's going to suffer, and Peter will say, no, may it never be. You're the Christ. You're the one. And even again here, Peter's trying to keep Christ from now going to the cross. Let's have glory now and not suffering. And Peter had once again forgotten who Jesus is, that he is the Redeemer, that he is the Christ, that he is not on equal terms with Moses and Elijah. You know, Jesus doesn't get an equal tent to, to Moses and Elijah. He, Jesus is the living God. And Moses and Elijah are but servants. And Peter had also forgotten Jesus' mission, the mission of the cross, the mission of death for sinners to die in their place. What's interesting, when, when Peter sees the glory of God here, he doesn't begin to think of all the things I'm going to miss now that I'm up on the mountain you know, he isn't in the glory of Jesus, and he thinks, you know, I'm going to get tired of this, Jesus. You know, are, Jesus, are we going to have golf up here? You know, Jesus, uh, you know, are we going to have, you know, my pets too that I love? Are they going to be up here too? Or, you know, are the, the other things that I really love down there, are they going to be here? Or will you bring them up here on the mountain with us? When you are in the presence of the glory of God, nothing else matters. Sometimes when we think about going to heaven, like, what are we going to do? You know, at least I'll have baseball to keep us, I mean, we're going to be there for a long time, right? Eternity is, what is forever? What are we going to do? You will behold the glory of God, and it will be enough. It will be enough. You will behold the full glory of Jesus Christ. We will be so overwhelmed by his absolute glory, nothing else will seem to matter. The best that this world has to offer us, it's empty. This world tries to bring heaven to earth, but it's all counterfeit. It's all weak glory, fake glory. But we, you and I in Christ, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We have Jesus and all of his glory. And we too, when we're there, we will say, this is good. This is good. 
And then as Peter is speaking, as our text tells us, he doesn't know what he is saying. In verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. God ascends in the form of a cloud and he speaks. And I think it's interesting, often um, when God speaks, he, he takes the form of a, the, of a cloud as well. Uh, it, or, you know, we see the cloud in, in following Israel, protecting them and guiding them, leading them. We see God ascending as a cloud on the, the tabernacle. Uh, we see a cloud ascending on Sinai. And the cloud reminds us that God is, is transcendent. He, he is wholly other. He is above. But the cloud also comes down. It's a reminder that, that God is, is imminent and he's near and, and he, uh, he condescends to us. And only three times in the entire New Testament do we ever hear God the Father audibly speak. One is at Jesus' baptism, another is here in our text, and the last time will be in John chapter 12, where Jesus is again praying, again praying, again Jesus is praying, and he says, now is my soul troubled, because he's about to go to the cross, and he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And he says, Father, glorify your name and then a voice came out from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the disciples are trembling here in fear as the glory of God surrounds them. And what are the three things that God says? There are really three points here that God says. He says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. This is my son. He is the eternal son of God, eternal glory, same in substance, equal in power and glory. This is the second person of the Trinity, the, the eternal begotten son of God, my chosen one. This is, again, everything that the Old Testament talks about. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is what Isaiah 53 was talking about. This is the one who's going to be wounded for your transgressions. He's going to be crushed for your iniquities. His life is going to be a sacrifice. It's going to be a, an atoning sacrifice. It's going to atone for your sins so that you can be counted righteous by God. And what shines out of us is filthy and black by nature, but what shines out of Jesus is pure and perfect, and he takes all of our darkness on himself and all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of the wrath of God, so that you and I might know his glory and live in it. He is the chosen one. And the last part is listen to him. You know, every sermon you should listen to, I usually say you should, uh, should have three things, guilt, grace, gratitude. You know, what's the sin that God's calling us to repent of? How, how are we forgiven and have life in Christ? And then what does God call us to do? Well, this is very easy, how, what the text tells us to do. How are we to respond to the glorious Jesus Christ who comes as the, the chosen one to, to, to die for sinners? How are we to respond? God tells us, listen to him listen to him, listen to him. How do we do that? We listen to everything God has said. We listen to everything Jesus has said in his word. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Are you listening to Jesus? What is something in your life that God is demanding that you pay attention to right now that Jesus declares to you that you're not listening to? Is it that 
your sins are fully forgiven in Jesus Christ, and you're still bearing guilt and shame, and you feel like if I only have so many sighs and tears, I can earn my way and get rid of this guilt and shame. No. Jesus says if you confess him, your sins are fully forgiven. Are you not listening to Jesus that he has adopted you into, your, into his family? That you are a son or daughter of the living God? You are, are a prince and princess of heaven? Are you not listening to Jesus where he promises that he will never leave you or forsake you? You feel alone, abandoned, but he has promised that he will never leave. Or that you should rest in him. Listen to Jesus when he says also, too, that you must die to self. You know, we have to stop living for, for money in this world and let our energy be for the glory of God, not for our own amusements and comforts. We also need to listen to Jesus when, when he calls us to action. Some of us think, you know, if only I would have been there, if only I had seen what Peter got to see, then I would believe. following Christ would be so much easier if I got to see that. But you know what's interesting? You know, as Peter is reflecting on this passage in his second letter in 2 Peter chapter 1, he'll write about this text. He'll say, we saw his majesty. We saw it. But we have something even more sure, he says. The prophetic word. It's amazing what Peter's saying. I got to see and behold the majestic glory of God, but what we have now is something even better, and that is the prophetic word. We have the words of God. We have a more sure word here than watching Jesus being transformed. We have the Bible. And so the way that we can know Jesus and his glory now is to believe the Bible that you don't need to be up on a mountain seeing rays of light to stir you into some spiritual experience. We need the Bible, and what we need to do is sit under it and prayerfully listen and humbly listen to what Jesus tells us. And when we listen to Jesus in his word, we will by, have the eyes of faith to behold his glory. And all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ now will one day no longer see with the eyes of faith, but one day see Jesus face to face in all of his glory, all of his glory, all of his glory, and it will be good. So listen to Jesus, rest in him, have the eyes of faith, and behold his glory in his word, and one day then face to face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, and um, Lord, we thank you that Jesus is glorious, and I pray that you will help us to remember that this world is not all that there is, uh, that there is a world to come, there is a world now in which uh, your glory is radiating, and Lord, give us eyes of faith to behold the glory of Jesus, that we might then face to face see and behold his glory. Lord, I pray that you will prepare us for sufferings now uh, as you call us to pick up our cross, Lord, that, that one day we too with Christ will wear the crown. We thank you that Jesus came and he freed us, gave us a true exodus, and brought us into the land of the living, to the promised land. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.